Wasn't that beautiful? Yes. If it matters to you, it matters to the master. As we saw last week, when blind Bartimaeus cried out to Jesus, Jesus, son of David, have mercy upon me. The text then says, Jesus stopped. I really appreciate that verse, the idea that Jesus stops at the cry of faith. Bartimaeus was blind. He was considered judged by God, by his community. He wasn't going to the temple for the uh, Passover festival. He was outside the religion. And yet, at the cry of faith, our cries matter to the Master. Let's bow our heads and open with a word of prayer. Father, as we gather here today, we thank you that if it matters to us, it matters to you. Father, we thank you that we can come before you. Father, I thank you that you can read our hearts like a book, that there is nothing hidden in our lives from you. So, Father, as we come into your presence today, we pray that you will read us, that you will know us, that you will forgive us and cleanse us. You will actually change our hearts. You will feed us this morning with the bread of life, that we may have the energy and the strength and the spirit within us to live for you in this coming week. Father, we pray a blessing upon those watching online and dotted around the world. Father, whatever home we came from this morning, we ask now that we come into the presence of Jesus Christ. And Father, I ask that Jesus himself will speak through me and for me. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. So I have a uh, question for you this morning. Uh, the, t the sermon is entitled To Hear or Not to Hear, and I have a, power, a slight PowerPoint to open the, the, the service here, so I'm trying to press this button and see if it works. Uh, do we have the... Uh, thank you. All right, I have a question for you. It's not a trick question. It really is a good question. All right, can you just move it forward to the next slide? Would that be possible? I have a, a question for you, and it should be coming up on the screen. They say, never work with children or animals, also with technology. Ah, so we're making forward progress. Not quite what I was hoping for, though. So, um, do we have the, the slide there? All right, there we are. <clears throat> All right, so, only four people in world history have won the U.S. Congressional Gold Medal and the Nobel Peace Prize. Only four people. So, um, nobody in Bible times won it, obviously, because America wasn't around back then. Um, but only four people in world history have won the Congressional Gold Medal and the Nobel Peace Prize. So the question is, who are those four people? Any ideas? Who has won both the Congressional Gold Medal and the Nobel Peace Prize? I'm not talking about the prize for physics or the Nobel Prize for mathematics or the Nobel Prize for literature. I'm talking about the Nobel Laureate himself or herself, the Nobel Peace Prize. Only four people have done this. Well. I'm going to start out with some very famous people. Martin Luther King, here we have him at his famous I Have a Dream speech, and uh, a critical person in the civil rights movement here in the United States who has inspired countless millions around the world uh, with the power of his preaching. Martin Luther King won the Nobel Peace Prize and also the Congressional Gold Medal before his assassination. The next person, the second person in the list of four, Mother Teresa of Calcutta, a nurse, um, a, a nun from Albania who spent her life serving among the poorest of the poor in Calcutta in grinding poverty, 
ministering to those caught up in, in, in the chains of poverty. Mother Teresa. So Martin Luther King, Mother Teresa. Okay, we've done two out of the four. Any ideas who the third person might be? All right, the third person is Nelson Mandela. I spent years in prison in Robben Island in South Africa. I went there myself a few years ago. Um, there's not much security on the island per se, and you're in sight of Cape Town because to swim from the island to Cape Town, you're swimming through waters infested with great white sharks. And very, very few people, I don't think anybody has actually made that swim. Um, well, they tr maybe they tried it, but they didn't make it. Nelson Mandela, and if you read his writings, listen to his speeches, he transcended his situation and spoke to the best impulses of the human heart, of reconciliation and forgiveness. So the fourth person, we have um, Martin Luther King, Mother Teresa, Nelson Mandela. These are giants of the 20th century. Would you agree? But there's one other person. Anybody, any idea? Think of somebody of the stature of these three. Martin Luther King, Nelson Mandela, Mother Teresa. I'm going to give you some clues. Sorry? President Obama. No, he's not up there. He won the Nobel Peace Prize, but he didn't win the Congressional Gold Medal. Um, President Biden was awarded the Congressional Gold Medal, I believe. Um, he remembered where he was that day. But he didn't win the Nobel Peace Prize. So who is the fourth person? Well, it's somebody that actually, he affects all of our lives on a daily basis at a very, very profound level. The first clue, who is this fourth person? He was born and raised in poverty. He was born and raised in Iowa on a farm with no running water, no electricity, and when, the, when the, 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 the rust came through, the stork rust came and wiped out the crops, um, the family were reduced to eating what he calls southern food, uh, stuff from the deep south of America. But he was born and raised in grinding poverty. He was raised in the 30s during the Great Depression, and uh, he went to university in Minnesota. Does any, any of this ring a bell to anybody? He's affecting all of our lives today. I guarantee you are blessed by this man's life. Clue two, he sent out apostles across the Middle East, and yes, they were called apostles. Born in Iowa, studied in Minnesota, he sent out apostles across the Middle East to 12 countries, Iraq, Mauritania, Tunisia, Egypt, Turkey, and so forth. He was born and raised in poverty, he sent out apostles, and his bread feeds the world. Any, any idea who I'm talking about here? Sorry? Billy Graham, that's a great answer, but that's not the correct answer this morning. And when I say bread, I'm talking about literal bread, all right? Um, when I rushed out this morning, I have a busy day today, I got some appointments this afternoon, so I said to my wife, I need something to eat, so she threw together for me two sandwiches, and uh, the sandwiches are made of bread, obviously, and on one sandwich is a PB&J, which is kind of my daughter's favorite, and this sandwich is, is, is my absolute favorite, and uh, Andy was here for the first service. Normally, I don't eat it as a sandwich, but it's homemade brown bread. I put a slice of butter on it, and uh, a bit of patter butter, a, a bit of butter, I'm sure you're saying. Then I put marmite on. Any of you know what marmite is? Yeah, so I have some fans over there. Marmite is, is, it sanctifies the, the palate. And then, then I put a slice of raw onion on it whether it's sweet onion or bitter onion, a big slice of onion, and I'm banished from my wife for the rest of the day, but it's absolutely delicious. Um, so I don't actually like sweet food. I don't like chocolate. I don't like candies. I don't like cookies. For me to eat a chocolate bar is an act of self-denial and an act of the will. 
and I have to force it back. But if I have a meal and uh, I'm at somebody's house and they say, well, now we have um, you know, an apple pie or something, in my heart I'm yearning for bread and marmite and raw onion. It's absolutely delicious. And I know that Endy has his eye on this. Um, being from Australia, they were also trained in sanctification. Um, my, my children, my children uh, kind of enjoy it. When my little girl was about four, I was trying to encourage her in the path of life. And I put some marmite on her bread and she says, Daddy, why should I eat it? And I absentmindedly said to her, well, eat it, Christine, and this will put hair on your chest. And she hasn't eaten much of it ever since. My brother, my son asked me, Dad, should I eat some marmite? I said, yes, David, um, I shouldn't put hair on your chest, yes, but it'll, it'll make your hair grow long and curly, and he doesn't eat it either very much. So I should have, I got my advice mixed up to my two children. Anyway, I recommend to you marmite. So who am I talking about? Do, do I hear a right answer? Well, actually, if you haven't heard of him, you have now. His name is Norman Borlaug, and he fed... He saved the world from mass starvation in the 1960s. You see, he grew up in poverty, and he understood that when stem rust hits wheat, that the entire crop is destroyed. And America was, is dependent upon wheat. Canada is dependent upon wheat. And more importantly for him, Mexico was dependent upon wheat. And what happens is that the, the trade winds that carry the birds back and forth when they, they migrate, it also carries the spores of the stem rust, and it carries it from northern plains of Mexico across the plains of America up into, into Canada, and it deposits the stem rust spores, and the stem rust spores attack the wheat, and the entire crop is gone, and nations can face starvation. And so he, he studied this. He did um, a, a degree in genetics, uh, finished in 1942. Genetics were a very primitive era back then. And uh, he was assigned by the Rockefeller Foundation to go to central Mexico to what Mex the Mexican government considered its prime wheat-growing region. And Mexico in the 1930s and 40s was hungry. Food was scarce. You know, tortillas and things, burritos. All of that needs wheat. Where are they going to get their wheat from? And the wheat yield in Mexico was very low, and so children were semi-starving, they had chronic malnutrition, they weren't performing well in school, and the Mexican government recognized we need to do something about this. So they asked the Rockefeller Foundation, and they hired this guy here, Norman Borlaug, and he went down to Mexico, and he spent uh, almost 20, 25 years in Mexico. He was hidden from much of the world. He realized the best wheat fields were in the north of Mexico, just south of the US border, and he grew wheat. And it was very simple what he did. He didn't use you know, modern technology. He would grow as many varieties as he could, laid out scientifically in, in, in a field. And then when the stem rust came through every year, he'd see which two or three stalks managed to survive. Then he'd, he'd cross-pollinate those two by hand and plant them again the next year. Then he'd see which stalk, which stalk survived the stem rust, and he'd plant them again. He had a number of young boys who he paid to, to um, sling stones at the birds to keep them away from his crops and he turned them into world-class geneticists. They had no formal education. But over 20 years of doing this, cross-pollinating tens of thousands of ears of corn, of wheat, sorry, he developed the wheat that we now eat in America and all around the world. In fact, by about 1964, 1965, Mexico, for the first time in its history, became a wheat-exporting nation. And he developed the wheat. So when I was growing up, wheat used to be kind of this high. But if you go to a wheat field now, how high is the wheat? Back down here. He realized 
that for wheat to have a higher yield of, of more wheat on, on the stalk, you have to have a shorter stalk so it's not going to be blown over by the wind. So he brought in some Japanese mini wheat and he cross-pollinated that with Mexican wheat. And so he shortened the, st the, the stalk down to about this high and he increased the yields three, four, five, six-fold of that wheat. Mexico was food sufficient by, by 1965. But at that time, India and Pakistan were kind of dueling it out and both India and Pakistan had chronic hunger. And in 1965, 1966, Lyndon, D Lyndon Johnson was keeping India in what he called a short lease. Indira Gandhi, the uh, Indian Prime Minister, was criticizing the war in Vietnam. America was shipping over a million tons of wheat a month to India just to keep India from starvation. A million tons of grain a month was going from America across to India. And Lyndon Johnson kept threatening um, Indira Gandhi and saying, if you criticize the, the Vietnam War, we're going to cut off your food supply and millions will starve in India to death. And as these uh, psychologists and sociologists were saying, well, maybe these people do need to starve because they can't feed themselves. And Norman Borlaug had the attitude that our fundamental human right is the right to food. And so he offered the UN to train Indian farmers and Pakistani farmers in how to grow this wheat. So through the United Nations, he sent out his food apostles, he trained people. And uh, over a billion people, a billion people had food by 1968 in India and Pakistan who otherwise would not have had their daily bread because of this man here. When he died, Time magazine said he was the greatest man in the world. He saved over a billion people from starvation. And the bread that we eat today, we talk about breaking the bread of life in the sermon, the bread that we eat today all comes from his wheat varieties. It's stem rust resistant. We still have stem rust in America, but the grains we have are resistant because this man spent almost 20, 25 years of his life separated from his family for six or seven months at a time, cross-pollinating the wheat, the male and the female together, alone in those fields of northern Mexico, fighting that rust to eventually he came out with varieties of wheat that we now depend on for our daily bread. An incredible person, yes? And so he, he was awarded the Nobel Peace Prize and he was awarded the Congressional Gold Medal, the fourth person in history. He's not as famous as Nelson Mandela or Martin Luther King or Mother Teresa, but we are alive today in America because of the wheat that he produced. It's an incredible story, yes? So I invite you to turn with me to another story of wheat and bread. And it's found in Mark chapter 4. We're going through last Sabbath and this Sabbath, the first four chapters of Mark. We're going to be dwelling this morning on the parable of the sower, and uh, it's a story about wheat, the bread of life, the staff of life, and uh, we've seen so far in Mark's gospel that Jesus has been a man of action. He's been preaching, he's been tealing, healing, uh, preaching, teaching, healing, cleansing lepers, casting out demons, forgiving the sins of people. He's been drawing large crowds to himself. He's been calling apostles to himself to spend time with him. We saw that this morning. And then sending them out to spread the word. And he's demonstrated his authority over Sabbath, over sin, over the demonic, and over various religious practices such as fasting. He's been accused of being a blasphemer, a Sabbath breaker, and a friend of sinners. And he's aroused the hatred of the religious authorities. But so far in the Gospel of Mark, we haven't heard much about what Jesus is actually teaching. We haven't heard much. Now in Mark 4, for the first time, 
we come to the teachings of Jesus in this particular gospel. Whereas Matthew starts with the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 6, and 7. Matthew has five sermons in his, in his gospel. Here in Mark, for the first time, we come to the teachings of Jesus, and we find that Jesus teaches in parables. Now, why would Jesus teach in parables? Well, when, he, when Jesus teaches in parables or taught, it arouses the, the interest, the curiosity of his hearers. Jesus used parables about daily life so that he would appeal to all kinds of hearers. All classes and occupations can find themselves within the parables of Jesus. Nobody is left out from these incredible teachings. Jesus rebuked wickedness and hypocrisy and sin in his parables, speaking truth in parables that the hearers would reject had he spoken it more openly. But because he spoke it in parables, um, they were more willing to listen to him. And Jesus linked parables to the week of uh, the weekly week of toil. He presented heavenly truths in terms of daily activities. He didn't present heavenly truth as it happens in a seminary, though that is important. He presented heavenly truths that we can learn as we sit at our desks, as we drive our cars, as we change the oil in our cars, as, as we garden, uh, raise our vegetable gardens and so forth. Heavenly truths are open to all of us if we will think about it. And as we go through our daily lives, Lord, what are you teaching me today as I change the oil on my car? Lord, what are you teaching me today as I take care of these weeds in my garden? And Father, what do you want me to learn today as I knead this bread or make this pizza for my children? And so the point about parables is that Jesus is inviting us to look for the presence of God and the lessons of God in our daily activity. We come to church to hear the word of God. What about Sunday through Friday? Are we open to learning lessons about God? One of the most famous Psalms there is, Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd, it was written by a shepherd boy in the fields as he's reflecting on his work as a shepherd. He didn't learn that in a seminary. He learned that in the daily grind of daily business. God wants to reveal himself to us in the daily activities that we engage in, whether we're a nurse, candlestick butcher, or baker, uh, candlestick butcher, or ca oh, candlestick butcher, baker, baker butcher, candlestick maker. I forget how it goes now. So I had a senior moment there. I hadn't had my bread, you see. So uh, no Marmite yet today. So uh, the point is that gee, God wants to reveal himself to us in the daily activities of life. And Mark records here the first of the parables of Jesus. And why does he start with the parable of the sower? Well, the parable of the sower is important because Jesus says in verse 13, look at there in your Bible, it says, Jesus said to them, do you not understand this parable? That is the parable of the sower. Then how will you understand all the parables? That is all the other parables. That is, failure to understand the parable of the sower means you will not understand all of the other parables that Jesus taught. And parables are like stained glass windows. If you look at a stained glass window from the outside of a building, from the outside of the church, all you see is gray windows. There's no light, no color, no picture, no image. But if you go inside the church and you look up at that same stained glass window, what you now see is a source of brilliant illumination. Is that not true? From the outside, you see grayness and nothingness. But as you go into the church, you look up and the light shines through, you see a glorious picture there. And it's the same with the parables of Jesus Christ. From outside the kingdom of God, they don't have much meaning. But when you give your life to Jesus Christ and you look upon the parables, suddenly that which was dull and dark and gray and meaningless now is filled with vivid colors and hues and a story and a picture, and it tells us something about our Heavenly Father. And so as we think about these parables of Jesus, the invitation for Jesus, if you want to understand them, you need to be in my kingdom. You need to have submitted and opened your heart to Jesus as Lord and Savior, and then the parables make sense to you. But if you're looking at them from the outside, they're just going to, they're not going to make much sense to you. Now, 
We're all familiar with this parable, I think most of us are, and I want to thank our sister for reading it uh, so beautifully for us. We're going to pick up in verse 3. Jesus starts the parable by saying, well, what does he say? Listen. And when he finishes the parable at verse 9, the very last word he says is, listen. This is important. This is very important. I want you to listen to this. Now, I've discovered as a guy in life that some things don't go in my ear, okay? Confession is good for the soul. Yesterday, my wife, she bought some cookies for a leaving do for one of her colleagues, and she put them on the, the, the entrance hall on, on the table there, and I absentmindedly walked in, and I saw some cookies, and I partook of one of those cookies. My wife gently asked me, she says, did you not hear me say, do not touch the cookies, they're for a work colleague, and I said, no. And the truth is, she had said it, but the truth was, I had not heard it. You see, to me, it was just white noise in the background, it just didn't register. No, I didn't hear you say that. You may have said it, but I didn't hear. I'm slightly deaf in the left ear, so when I sleep on the right side, my wife talks to me, all I hear is wah, 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 and in the morning she says, I told you, so yes, but I never heard. We're both speaking the truth, and that's wonderful. I also learnt as, as a father with small children that maybe, Andy, you know this, I can be sleeping when my child is, is six feet from away from me, screaming with, with colic or something at three in the morning, and it doesn't enter my eardrums. just doesn't register. Does anybody else not have that experience? Come on, guys. Don't you have this problem? It's a profound problem. I wake up the next morning and said, my, that child slept wonderfully last night. My wife looks at me with bleary eyes, and she says, oh, no, he did not. The baby can be screaming six feet from my ears, but it doesn't enter the eardrums. It just doesn't register. It's a biological problem. I'm not morally responsible for it, and so I enjoy my night's sleep. You see, it's possible to hear, but not to listen. And Jesus starts this parable, and he finishes this parable with a present imperative, which means don't just hear once, twice, or thrice, but keep on listening to what I'm about to tell you. You've got to focus on this. You've got to reflect on this. You've got to chew over this as you would chew over bread in your mouth. You need to focus on what I'm about to say to you. So I hope you're focusing what I'm about to say to you here. Jesus is calling for our attention. Verse 4 says this, And as he sowed, some seed fell on the path, and the birds came and ate it up. And then Jesus interprets it, thankfully for us, in verse 15, by saying, these are the people or the ones on the path where the word is sown. When they hear, Satan immediately comes and takes away the word that is sown in them. The word of God does fall upon inattentive hearts. Like a well-worn path, the heart becomes almost immune to the gospel because it is so immersed in the world's desires, pleasures, entertainment, and sins. As we're absorbed in selfish aims and sinful indulgences, the hearts, our hearts are hardened through the deceitfulness of sin, as the Apostle Paul says in Hebrews 3.13, and our spiritual faculties are paralyzed. What we feed our bodies matters, and what we feed our minds matters even more. What we feed our minds, what we like to dwell upon, what we like to talk about, what we do for entertainment, how we feed our soul, it either leads us closer to Jesus Christ or it takes us away from Jesus Christ. There is nothing neutral that we feed our minds with. It's either positive or it's negative. And so Jesus is calling us to be discerning in what we feed our minds with here. Men and women do hear the Word of God, but they do not understand their spiritual condition, their spiritual danger, their need of God's forgiveness, their need to repent of sinful lives, and they pass by the gospel of Jesus Christ as if it were not for them. 
Such individuals can actually harden the hearts of others, particularly the hearts of children or those young in the faith. How does that happen? On returning home, they sit down over lunch, and they may be vegetarian, but they dine on the flesh of the preacher. They criticize the mannerisms of the preacher. They criticize the fact that he doesn't listen to his wife. They criticize the length of the sermon, the preacher's conduct, the lives of their fellow members. Gossip is repeated, severe judgment is passed, slander is regurgitated, and all in the hearing of young impressionable hearts who are trained to have little to no reverence for God's word or for God's laborers, and they become infidels within the Christian home. So Jesus says to such people, listen, and keep on listening, and keep on chewing on my word as you would chew on some bread because I am the sower and I'm giving you bread. I want you to chew on it so it does you some good. If you don't chew upon it, it won't do you any good whatsoever. Listen, says Jesus, listen and stay, keep on listening, or Satan will snatch away your chance of eternal life. The second kind of soil is found in verses five through six. It says, other seed fell on rocky ground where it did not have much soil, and it sprang up quickly since it had no depth of soil. And when the sun rose, it was scorched, and since it had no root, it withered away. So what does Jesus mean by this kind of soil? You have the hardened soil, and now you have the rocky soil. Well, thankfully, Jesus explains for us what this parable, part of the parable, means. In verse 16, he says, and these are the ones sown on rocky ground. When they hear the word, they immediately receive it with joy, but they have no root and endure only for a while. Then, when trouble or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately they fall away. The Word of God does fall upon stony hearts. The soil looks good on the surface, but it's very shallow. And underneath is hard rock where no roots can take root. The plant springs up quickly, but as it sends down its roots, it finds nothing but rock, and so the plant withers away. Such hearers are those who publicly express a spiritual desire to walk with God. They live a publicly religious life. Everything looks good on Sabbath morning, but their hearts are dominated by selfishness. Theirs is a superficial faith. Such hearers, they hear the Word of God with joy initially, but they do not yield themselves to the control of the Word of God. They neither want nor allow their sinful habits or their sinful indulgences to be brought into subjection to God's will. Such hearers receive the gospel as an escape from temporal suffering rather than as a deliverance from sin. And whilst life is good, they rejoice in their walk with God. But when suffering on the name, in the name of Jesus comes or temptation reaches into their unconverted hearts, their walk with God demands too much, it is too costly, and they trade eternal riches for temporal gain. Other hearers like this, they hear the word of God, yet they depend on their own good words and deeds rather than Christ for their righteousness. They're certain, they're confident in their own self-righteousness, seeing no need to wear the righteousness of Jesus himself. Some hearers follow for convenience rather by conviction. They do not welcome the Holy Spirit's reproving voice in their lives. Their heart and life is not brought into harmony with the word of God. They acknowledge their general sinfulness, yes, I'm a sinner, but they refuse to give up their particular sins. And as the sower intends that the seed sends down deep roots where the plant can be nourished, hidden from the sight of the casual passerby, so Jesus intends that we as Christians put down deep roots so we are nourished daily through what is often an invisible faith relationship with our Heavenly Father. Through seeking to serve both self and God, such hearers are half-hearted Christians, stony ground hearers, who will not endure when the tests of life come. So Jesus says to such people from John 3:17, you must be born again. 
Except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. There's a third type of soil, and I know we're familiar with these types here, but we're going to work through them together. The third type of soil is found in verse 7 of this chapter. Jesus says, Other seed fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked it, and it yielded no grain. This was the, soil, the, the grain in Mexico, Canada, and America before Norman Borlaug came on the scene. And how does Jesus describe it? Well, he describes it in verse uh, 18 through 20. He says there, and others are those sown among the thorns. These are the ones who hear the word, that's good news, but the cares of the world and the lure of wealth and the desire for other things comes in and chokes the word, the word and it yields nothing. Yes, the word of God may fall upon thorny hearts, but the seed, and the seed of God will fall among weeds and thorns, and the tragedy is that the, um, weeds and thorns have no need of cultivation. Uh, I've just finished a, a couple of weeks' vacation. Most of it's been spent chopping wood at home and a cleaning brush and so forth. It's good to do these activities. I've discovered what uh, poison ivy looks like. I have a, an intimate relationship with it now, and it's not one based on love. I've also experienced logs uh, chopping off boughs of trees that I think if it's 20 feet up, then it's no danger to anybody, but apparently it needs to come down, so it comes down a few times on my head, and it's not a very pleasant experience. Well, the thing I've seen more than anything else is that in the garden there are weeds. Where there is a garden, there will be weeds. You don't need to cultivate them, you don't need to water them. Your grass may die, but the weeds will thrive. If there is no, if there is no rain, the grass will die, the roses will die, but the weeds will not die. They are persistent little things, aren't they? You cannot get rid of them, almost it seems like that. They represent the natural state of the fallen human heart. We do not need to encourage sin. We do not need to water sin. Sin does not need daily cultivation to thrive. Sin thrives within our hearts, whether we like it or not, whether we admit it or not. Regardless of what kind of soil is in our heart, regardless of our walk with God, weeds will always find a place to thrive. Yet, they do need to be rooted out continually as a gardener weeds continually for there to be space for the Word of God to thrive and to flourish. The seeds are not merely to be cut down to the thorns. They are to be uprooted completely, or they will keep returning, and they will overwhelm the good seed. What is needed for the individual is not just to stop committing a few sins, obvious, visible sins, but an utter transformation. It requires one to have a new heart experience, as the prophet Ezekiel promised. It requires one to be born again. It requires one to have the law of God written in our hearts so that we yearn and love and desire to do the will of God rather than the fallen desires of fallen humanity. Jesus says about this kind of person, when the, wet, the cares of this world, they choke out the word of God and the lure of wealth and the desire for other things, um, he, he recognizes the fact that while we're enjoined in Scripture to work faithfully, we must not do so at the expense of our walk with God. Even those who are busy serving God nine till five are susceptible to allowing the busyness of life to overwhelm their walk with God. It's easy to be a minister of the gospel and to actually be detached from your heavenly Father. And after a while, your walk runs dry. If you're a preacher, you'll realize that if you're not in the Word on a daily basis, the well runs dry approximately within about two weeks. There's nothing more to give. You're either in the Word, sucking up the water of life, and from that comes a harvest of righteousness on a daily basis, or there's nothing more to give. You're a dry husk. 
And so in this parable, Jesus warns against the cares of this world. It's not just for the, the secular and the godless, but also for those who call themselves Christians. Do not be so busy that we have no time for Jesus Christ or your relationship will inevitably die. Jesus also talks about the deceitfulness of wealth or the lure of wealth. Wealth is deceitful because it promises much, but it delivers little. The poor but worry about getting what they don't have, but the rich have much more to worry about. They worry about losing what they do have. Those with boats, bikes, snowmobiles, cars, jet skis, holiday homes, stock market accounts, bank accounts, retirement accounts, IRAs, and the list goes on. They find their sheer material possessions a burden to maintain and to manage and to possess. And it's hard for them to find friends. It's hard for them to find friends. I was introduced to someone just a couple of weeks ago who I know is worth millions and millions and millions of dollars. And this person, well, someone close to them said, said to this person, is he your friend because of your money or because he actually cares about you? See, if you're wealthy, you never know whether people are truly your friends or not. You never know whether they're your friends because you have something to give financially, or you never know whether they're your friend because they actually care about you as a human being. And so, the, paradoxically, the, the rich are often very lonely. So, Proverbs, turn in your Bible, keep your fingers in Mark 4 and turn back to Proverbs, Proverbs 30. We find a beautiful little passage there from Solomon. And uh, it talks about the happy medium that God wants for us, a very famous a very famous passage here, Proverbs 13, verse 7. This is what we read in the Word of God. It says, Two things I ask of you, Proverbs 13, verse 7. Two things I ask of you, do not deny them to me before I die. Remove far from me falsehood and lying. Give me neither poverty nor wealth. Feed me with the food that I need, i.e. for today. Or I shall be full, that is wealthy, and I shall deny you and say, Who is the Lord? or I shall be poor and steal, and thus profane the name of my God. And so there is a happy medium in life. It is not God's will that we have extremes of wealth or poverty in any society, for the wealthy turn their back on God, and the poor have no option but to turn to crime to feed their children. And both these positions bring honor, dishonor to our Heavenly Father. The desires for many things, says Jesus, we turn back to Mark 4. Many things are not sinful in and of themselves, but when something becomes a priority in our life ahead of serving God's people and serving his kingdom, then it's become an idol. I sometimes say to people, well, they say, I'd like to be a missionary. I say, well, what's holding you back from being a missionary? And somebody says, well, it's my career. Or I have a collection of antique cars. Or they say, well, I'd, I'd love to be a missionary, but, you know, I'm, I've, I'm a stamp collector and I want to keep my stamp collection going. Well, stamp collection is not in and of itself a, a wicked thing, but when it stops you from serving God, it's become an idol. If you want to know whether you have any idols in your life today, maybe ask yourself the question, what is stopping you from engaging fully in the Gospel Commission? If you were asked by the General Conference to relocate to Jakarta or to Moscow, what would be the excuse for why you cannot go? Examine your hearts carefully. You may find there are some hidden idols just hiding there just below the surface that take precedence over the Kingdom of God. And so Jesus says to such folks in John 15:5. He says, without me, you can do nothing. We labor for meager results if we only allow meager time with our Heavenly Father. The fourth kind of soil are the open hearts. 
We find them in verse 8 of Mark 4. It says there, Other seed fell into good soil and brought forth grain, growing up and increasing and yielding 30 and 60 and 100-fold. This is miraculous seed in miraculous soil. Norman Borlaug, he managed to raise the, the, the crop yields in Mexico from maybe a, a fourth of a ton a year to maybe three tons maximum in a year. I mean, it was almost a tenfold increase, and the world now is not short of bread because he achieved a tenfold increase in India and Pakistan and Yemen and Egypt and other places like that, a miraculous increase. But Jesus says there'll not just be a tenfold, it'll be a 30, a 60, and a hundredfold increase within your life. And he describes these people in verse 20. He says, these are the ones sown on the good soil. They hear the word, they accept it, they bear fruit. There's a fruit of the Spirit, 30 and 60 and 100-fold. It is God's desire that we be fruitful Christians. It is God's desire that we, our characters are changed. We bring forth the fruit of the Spirit of love and joy and hope and peace and long-suffering and mercy and gentleness and self-control and so forth from Galatians 5:22. It is God's desire that we be fruitful in the sense of bringing other people into His kingdom. God is not pleased when we are dry sticks that, that don't produce any fruit. There's a, we planted a tree in front of my garden earlier this year, and it's, it's about this high, and there's no leaves on it. And every time I walk by it, I think, I'm going to chop that thing down. Either produce or go away. You know, I don't want you. I'm going to give it another season, maybe two seasons, and then that's it. You know, if you don't produce, you don't grow, I have no, no, no time for you. Jesus is looking for fruit in my life, and he's looking for a fruit in your life, a fruit first and foremost of a transformed character, that I'm not the man I used to be, but by the grace of God, neither am I the man I used to be, that God sees the change he's working within me, that he will bring to completion the good work that he's begun in each one of us, that we are open to participating with God in him shaving the barnacles of sin off our characters. And so, to such people, Jesus says, one day, come, you that are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world, Matthew 25, 34. But the paradox about this parable is that what's the name of the parable? What is it actually called? What do we all know this parable as? The parable of the four soils? No. We always talk about the four soils, but that's not what the parable is about. It's actually called the parable of the, the sower. So while it's interesting and for us, because we see ourselves as the soil, to talk about the four kinds of soil, the parable is actually about the sower. And Jesus starts out by saying, he doesn't say there were four kinds of soil and the farmer was worried about it. No, he says in verse 3, he says, listen, like, keep on listening, open your ears to me. He says, a sower went forth to sow. This is a parable about a sower. It is not a parable primarily about the four kinds of soil. And what does this parable tell us about the sower. Well, the sower is Jesus Christ. He came into this world to sow the seed, that is the Word of God, and His own body, He is the living Word, in order that the world might not be condemned, but the world might be saved through Him. This is a story about God reaching into sinful humanity, that we might receive the gift, not just of bread for today, but eternal life, the bread of life we may live for eternity. God gave us grace in Jesus Christ before the foundation of the world. Every sin and act of rebellion that we commit in our lives, God knew before this world was created. There's nothing going to catch him by surprise. There's nothing that he wasn't aware of before he gave us the gift of Jesus Christ, before the foundation of the world. And Jesus Christ came to earth to sow that paradise lost might one day be paradise restored. The text says that the sower 
sows. Now, we may look on this parable and we may see four different kinds of soil. We may see hardened roads and rocky soil and, th and soil with thorns in it and a bit of good soil over here. We just see fields. But the sower sows because he knows that by the grace of God, where there today is fields with nothing good, tomorrow there may be a harvest of righteousness and a harvest for eternity. The sower has hope for you and me. The sower sows his word into our lives, regardless of the kind of soil we happen to be, because he sees us as we are, but he sees us how he wants us to be. He's hoping for an eternal harvest in each of our lives. He doesn't just say, oh, he's hardened soil, he, she's rocky soil, that person over there, uh, potentially that's good soil. He doesn't just leave it like that. The sower sows in all kinds of soil. There is always hope in the eyes of God. He doesn't write off this kind of soil. He doesn't say that kind of soil is bad. We'll just leave that for, wasted on things like flowers. No, sorry. He's, all soil is good for God. All soil has the potential of bringing a harvest. No matter if your heart is hardened today, you're carrying baggage from the past, there are scars and wounds. It may be that your life is incredibly busy and you've been dragged here this morning to keep a spouse happy, I don't know. It may well be that, that, um, that you're, 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 you're fixated on, on the next step of your career or how your IRA is doing or you wanna get that new car, whatever the case may be. Wherever you are today, whatever kind of heart, the sower sows into your heart because the sower knows that there can be a harvest of righteousness in your life, an eternal harvest of righteousness in your life. The sower sows where we would not sow. I would not sow in the rocky soil. I don't plant seeds at home where there's stones. I don't, I don't sow flowers in the middle of the driveway because I know it's not gonna go, do anything. But God sows where humanly there is no hope. God sows where there is no prospect of a harvest. God sees beyond the judgments and the curses and, and the, the, the condemnations of this world. He sees that even when there is no hope as far as the human mind is concerned, there is always hope for God. And so he sows today. He sows in your heart and he sows in my life. He scatters the seed seemingly indiscriminately, unwisely wasting precious seed on rocky soil, thorny ground or hardened path because God sees hope for every kind of soil and every kind of human heart. And his sowing brings hope for today, that our barren lives, our rocky hearts, our thorny homes can be transformed by the indwelling power of Jesus Christ, that our rocky relationships can be replaced with love, that the nagging sense of a lack of fulfillment, uneasiness, and restlessness can be replaced with wholeness, contentment, and inner peace. Praise be to God, the sower left the realms of heaven to sow on a fallen earth that one day he might bring a harvest of righteousness back to heaven and to his heavenly Father. Really, the parables reveal the states of the human heart. The parables, such as this one here, uh, if, if you go back to when the Israelites were fleeing out of Egypt, um, Jesus came between the Egyptians and the Israelites by the Red Sea. So the Egyptians, Exodus 14 says, that Jesus, the presence of Jesus brought darkness to one side and light to the other. That which was darkness to the world was a source of illumination to God's people. The same event today and the same parables are either a source of darkness to those on the outside or a source of illumination and teaching for those on the inside. And the parables, how we understand them, reveals whether we are in God's kingdom or whether we're on the outside of God's kingdom. Now Jesus begins this parable with a command to listen and he finishes it with a command in verse nine to listen. 
It's a present imperative. It means listen and listen and listen and listen and listen and listen. It's what I say to my kids when they're growing up now. I want to say to this, listen, you know, please take care of what I'm saying to you. Is it going into your ears? You know, it's not just going in here and out the other end. I want you to listen to me. That's what we say as parents. This is what Jesus is saying to us. I want you to pay attention to this. I want you to meditate on it. I want you to chew over it. So the, the, the command is there um, to listen. And if you look in verses 14 through 20, the word word, logos, appears eight times, and the command to hear appears four times. So clearly, we, maybe, we, we may not pick it up in the English, but in the original Greek there, that there's a relationship between hearing and the word. Faith comes through what? Hearing of the, the word through feeding on the Word, through making the Word part of who you are on a daily basis. Just as I have my daily bread, I am also inviting the Scripture to have my daily bread. It's part of the teaching of Jesus. But whereas there are four soil experiences in this, chap in this parable, there are only two kinds of hearer. There are four soil experiences, but there are only two kinds of hearer. And we all fall into one of those two kinds. The first kind of hearer is represented by the first three kinds of soil, the hardened soil, the rocky soil, and the, and the uh, thorny soil. They all have one thing in common. When Jesus says that they hear, in verse 15, and 16, and 18, he uses the aris tense, which means it's a punctiliar one-off event. It means it goes in one ear and straight out the other without doing much on the way through. When my wife says, don't eat those cookies, that was, I listened to her in an RS sense. It went in, and it went out, and it didn't register on the way through. Okay? And those, the first three soil experiences, Jesus uses that tense. When they listen to the Word of God, it goes in, they hear it, and it goes out, but not much happens up here. It doesn't stick. Nothing catches. They don't dwell on it. They don't think about it. They don't ask, what does this mean for my life? They hear it and go, eh, I'll get on with my life. That's the first kind of hearer. The second kind of hearer is found in verse 20. It says, they hear the word. In English, it doesn't come through, but it comes through in the Greek. They hear the word, it's a present continuous. That is, they hear it once, but they hear it twice. They hear it thrice. They keep on listening to it. It becomes part of their daily lives. It doesn't just go in one ear and go out the other ear. It goes in and it stays in there. And just as you chew on bread and you turn bread over in your mouth, so they chew on the Word of God, turning it over in their head like you would maybe chewing gum to squeeze out the flavor and the meaning with every chew and, and, and thought of the mind. There are, four kind, there are four kinds of soil, but there are two kinds of listeners. Those who listen once and never again, and those who listen once and it sticks in there, and then they turn it over in their minds. It's not just for the parable of the sower, this is for all the teachings of Jesus. So there's four types of soil, there's two kinds of hearer, which means there's one decision to make. There are four kinds of soil. There's two kinds of hearer, which means logically there's only one decision to make. Will I be spending time with Jesus this week or will I not? Will I intentionally set aside those best hours of the day when I'm most awake to think and reflect upon the teachings of Jesus? Or will I, de best, will I de devote the best times of the day when I'm most awake to my favorite hobbies and activities? I need to choose. I need to choose today because nobody is born as this kind of listener or that kind of listener. Jesus teaches this to all of us 
And he's asking, inviting all of us to listen and to listen and to listen and to chew and to chew and to chew. It doesn't matter what kind of soil we came to church with today. The invitation for all of us is to make that one decision. Am I just going to hear the word of God and let it go straight out the other end? Or am I going to chew on it day by day? As I chew on it day by day, I will see God bringing in a miraculous harvest into my life. First 30-fold harvest, then a 60-fold harvest, then a 100-fold harvest. I want to challenge you today to spend time with our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We live in a bitterly polarized world and a polarized nation. Be careful what you listen to. But if you listen to nothing else, make it your priority to listen to the words and the teachings of Jesus Christ. Because he is the Savior of all people. And when Jesus comes again, there will be people of all political and ethnic and other backgrounds waiting to receive him because they've given their lives to him. We are consumed with the battles of this world, forgetting that the greater battle is for the human heart. And this parable here, Jesus is inviting us to take a choice today that we will not hear the words, just what the preacher says, and go home and, and forget about it. But we'll make a choice today to listen to the teachings of Jesus, to turn them over in our minds, to chew on them day by day, and to ask God to reveal to us, Father, what would you teach of me in this verse? Father, how are you going to guide my life today? Father, is there a promise you want me to build my life on today? Lord, is there a rebuke for me that you want me to change my life? Father, is there a whisper that says, Conrad, when this moment happens, this is how I want you to behave? Are we open to the voice of the Holy Spirit? There are four kinds of soil, two kinds of hearers, but one decision. The decision is yours. I pray that each and every one of us will choose this day that we will listen to the words of Jesus above and beyond any other words that are entering our minds in this coming day, the coming week. Whatever the choice is, I stand before you and say that as for me and my house, we will feed on the word of God. We will have our daily worship as a family. We will have our devotional time. We will choose to speak about what the word of God means on a daily basis. We want the word of God to take root in our lives so we produce a harvest today and a harvest for eternity. Choose life and choose Jesus. Amen.